Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Europe. Today is Sunday, August 30th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, true Israel, and thank you for listening. Today, once again, we have Sven Longshanks here, and we're going to continue our series on the traitors of England. And even though as we advance into English history, the story gets more and more complex, the point that I've tried to make throughout this series is that every time England is overrun, all of the troubles over the centuries that England has gotten into are all due to allegiances, alliances made with people from the continent or people coming from the continent. And and that's the case clearly in Roman times. That was the case with with the um the British kings and the Saxons. That was again the case with William of Normandy and again with Oliver Cromwell. Today we are going to discuss William of Orange, William III of Orange, and his own coming to the English throne, and how that also resulted in treachery for the English people. That treachery resulted in bondage for the English people and for the entire Christian world as we shall see. And once again, in order to discuss this, we have Sven Longshanks. Hello, Sven. Hi, Bill. Uh, hello, listeners. I'm uh, pleased to be here once again. Yeah, I, the, this, the treachery of William of, of Orange, I mean, we're still feeling that today. I mean, if you look at that, that was just one traitor and there was a, f- a few others dotted around. And now we've got a whole parliament full of traitors because of what William of Orange did. With uh, with the Bank of England that we're that we're going to get to, but I, I think that was the real turning point was was William of Orange. He was the the traitor of all traitors, as it were, because because of the ramifications of of setting the, these Jews up with with the Bank of England, which just corrupted everything and and put everyone into bondage in it and everyone into into debt to them, it put them in the position of being the king. So he was in effect handing over this, the sovereignty of the country to to the Jews, which is what we're going to go into today. But that's the way I see it anyway. Well, well that's true. It's the Rothschilds. Everybody loves to talk about the Rothschilds. The Rothschilds are latecomers. And if it wasn't for the Rothschilds, it would have been some other dominant Jewish banking family. Because the sellout, the real treachery, was with the founding of the Bank of England. And from there, the Jewish usurers, along with some some of their um, Anglo-Saxon partners, but, but predominantly the Jewish usurers were, have been able to control England and, and loot and pillage the, com- the country of all of its, of, of all of its wealth. 
until we're at the point where we're at today, where we are at today. I'm going to start with a, a brief overview because I, I kind of like it, and it'll help serve as an introduction. We've covered some of this ground in discussing Cromwell in our last segment, but this is just a page from Andrew Hitchcock's History of the Money Changers, and he gives a year-by-year overview of, of the incremental way in which the Jewish bankers had gained the control of our society. And this part starts in 1558, and he says uh, of Queen Elizabeth I that she succeeds her half-sister Queen Mary to the throne of England. During her reign, Queen Elizabeth decided that in order to wrest control of the money supply, she would have to issue her own gold and silver coins. She did this through the public treasury and successfully took control of the money supply from the money changers. Now, we had um, discussed last week how Henry VIII and, and other kings of his time, the Angevin kings, were borrowing money from the continent. And, and they were. And, and they didn't have the ability to tax the Jews because they weren't borrowing money from Jews in their own dominions. They were going outside of their dominions to borrow money. So they had to pay the interest rate with no benefit of taxation. So that's like double indemnity for the kings, right? Hitchcock then writes of the year 1609 that the money changers... Bill, let me just uh, interject a minute. I've just got an interesting thing about Queen Elizabeth. As well as doing that, she was the first, she actually got rid of uh, all the Negroes that were in the country. There weren't very many of them, but it's the, the only record we have of actually expelling Negroes. And she wrote an, an open letter to the Lord Mayor of London announcing that there are of late diverse blackamoors brought into this realm of which kind of people there are already here too many. And she ordered that they be deported from the country. This is in the um, documents from the documents in the National Archive. And then uh, a week later, she said uh, she said that it was her good pleasure to have those kind of people sent out of the land. And she commissioned a merchant, Caspar von Senden, to take up certain blackamoors here in this realm and to transport them into Spain and Portugal. So uh, there, there isn't a record of, of them actually leaving, but it was set up to, for a boat to get rid of them. It was obviously just a, a boat's worth of them, so there wasn't actually that many of them. And then uh, finally in 1601, we have another record of it, and, and she's complaining again about great numbers of niggers and blackamoors, which, as she is informed, are crept into this realm, infidels, having no understanding of Christ or his gospel. And she again authorised their deportation. So uh, this shows you that at the time there was no, no, oh, we should be converting these people to Christianity. They were just infidels with no understanding of Christ or his gospel and they had no place being in the country. There was no, um, oh, what about the humanity of it? What about them being the same as, same as us or, or whether, you know, we could turn them into Christians? They, they just didn't even enter into it. It was just get rid of them. They don't belong in this country. So, um, as well as uh, minting our own money, she also got rid of um, the foreigners that were here. So, 
she's probably quite a good queen just on those two accounts, I would say. Yes, it sounds like she was a very good queen. I didn't know that uh, about the Negroes. It, it's um, this really isn't my my period of reading, right? But but that's definitely something to look into in the future. Thank you. In in 1609, the money changers in the Netherlands ish they established the first central bank in history in Amsterdam. Now I don't know why, Sven. Sven, I, I can establish that it wasn't Cromwell. It, it, the, all of the um, mainstream histories say that Cromwell wanted to move the, the, the banking center of Europe from the Netherlands to London. I don't think it started with Cromwell. I think that the Jews wanted to move to London. Uh, I um, The Netherlands were um, under control of the Spanish crown at the time. The, the French were um, were Catholics. I really think that the Jews, in spite of the fact that they were thrown out in 1290, I think they wanted to move to, to, to um, London and recruited Cromwell. And my reason for thinking that is very simple. Because after Cromwell was gone, the Jews were still... Um, paying and, and bribing English noblemen to open the way for them to get into London. So the mainstream histories all put this on Cromwell, but I don't, this was the Jews. Cromwell was a tool of the Jews. He wasn't trying to use the Jews as a tool the way that the histories depict it. Oh, yeah, because uh, um, at, at the time, he wasn't actually able to, to get them back in, and people did complain about it. And one of, the, one of the most surprising groups that did actually complain about it was the East India Company. They said that um, Jews were alien infidels and perpetual enemies of the British crown. And this, this makes me sort of think that, because at the time, the East India Company was in the hands of... Um, British merchants, and they had just been given uh, autonomy. Wherever they were, they were told that they could set up governments, they could set up an army there, they could make the laws there, and they would be backed by by the British Crown, and they would be like an autonomous unit. And this was when it was run by British people. And you can see that they're quite hostile to the Jews, saying that they're alien infidels and perpetual enemies of the British Crown. And yet within 70 years... The majority of the East India Company was made up of Jews, and it also in that in that time the Bank of England was started, and that almost makes me think maybe that was a reason for them wanting to come back into Britain was to get their hands on the East India Company and to set the bank up here in Britain, and also have the East India Company. That would be a way to get into the East India Company. They would have both of them then. They would be able to. Um, run things in India and then they'd be able to run things in Britain and they'd be able to finance their operation with the East India Company through the bank that, that they had in Britain. So I don't know um, whether that could have played any part in their motives because I've wondered why was it that they they wanted to be based in Britain when they already had this bank in Holland. They're quite, that's quite clearly what they're after was getting into Britain. As you, as you say, um, after Cromwell wasn't actually able to get them in and, and it, after that they were still pushing 
So he he was a tool of them. But I, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that at all about the, the whether it was the East India Company. Well, well, that's possible, but there were more companies than that, and, and it's something that I wanted to look into, and and we even talked about looking into for this program, but I just haven't had the chance yet. Are these stock companies in England, which many of which, like the East India Company, started off free of Jews, and all the way back to the 16th century, there was also a Levant company that was chartered in the 16th century that endured until the later part, I think, of the 18th century. And the Levant company was organized as a stock company to trade with Turkey and, and Syria and, and Palestine. The um and it lasted for three hundred years. The the um history of of the stock companies in relation to the the Jews in the city of London is definitely something that I, I would like to look into in the near future. And, and you may very well be right about the East India Com- Company, even though the uh, Dutch. The, the Dutch had their own business ventures in India and, and the islands of the Pacific. They weren't anywhere near as successful as the English. That may have played a large part in it then. Because this was all at this time was, was just getting a hold in, in India. Uh, maybe they could see that, that they would be able to create an empire and be at the top of it if they, if they had their bank in the country that was just starting to to reach out to these countries and had merchants in them really it was a similar uh, system that was actually g- given to the city of city of london that was given to these stock companies you know they had total autonomy and, and pretty much sovereignty especially this this east india company well, there were many other such companies there were the virginia company the hudson bay company that there was um the Carolinas in 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 the colonies here, the Carolinas were given granted by Charles the Second as a um, benefit to those who supported his restoration, and they were immediately loaded up with Negroes, black slaves from Africa, to work the tobacco trade. So, so they were solely a um, a vehicle of profit for certain English patrons and and Jewish patrons of Charles II. So that's something we should definitely look into in the near future. The um and discuss at greater length. I don't know how many of the records are, are accessible or reachable. I don't see even a whole lot of um, of talk about the stock companies in the better conspiratorial history books. In 1609, 
the Jews, the money changers, he calls them, and the Netherlands established the first central bank in history in Amsterdam. In 1642, Oliver Cromwell is financed by the money changers for the purposes of fomenting a revolution in England and allowing them to take control of the money system again. After much bloodshed, Cromwell finally purges the parliament, overthrows King Charles I, and puts him to death in 1649. Of course, Charles I was resisting the Jews and the merchants of the city. The money changers immediately consolidate their power and for the next few decades plunge Great Britain into a series of costly wars, especially with the Dutch. They also take over a square mile of property in the center of London, which becomes known as the City of London. Now, Bill, I think I think that um, Charles I may have been aware that this is what was going on, you know, because he he actually went in there and took all the money out from the city of London at one point. He seized all of it, and also at the same time, he went into Parliament and tried to arrest uh, some of the the members of Parliament, and that was the excuse they used for executing him. At the time, it was it it was. There were two forces. There were those that believed in the divine right of kings to rule, and those that wanted the, the were using the excuse of we need to put the rulership in the hands of the, of the ruled. You know, we're, we're going to make out that it's that it's the people that are actually ruling, when in actual fact it's going to be an oligarchy. So you had these two forces, and I think Charles I could could possibly see this is what was going to happen because that this is exactly what did happen. Within, within the space of a century, you had um, all the power was, was put into the hands of Parliament and it was taken away from the king. And when you had the king there, you had somebody that, that was bred to see the, the people as being his subjects. You know, the king is, is, is nothing without his, his subjects and he's going to be the king for the entirety of his life and he's going to have to pass that on down to to his heirs so he's not going to be wanting to sell off parts of it he's not going to be um, wanting to treat his people badly, badly he's going to be wanting to go down in history as, as being king such and such the great Whereas you don't hear of any great prime ministers because they're only in power for a few years and they just seek to do what what's going to be best for them. They don't have a, a, a long history of, of being the uh, the focal point of, of the people. So I think you have you have and monarchy is is God instituted. That's that's the system of um, of rulership or the system of society, hierarchy, aristocracy that that, we, that is set down for us in the Bible. It's obviously not perfect. You know, I mean, Christ is is the King, but we have these earthly ones who back then really believed in what they were doing. They tried to. Uh, upkeep God's laws. They were sworn to uphold the laws of the Bible and they saw the Bible as being their legitimation their, making it legitimate making their rule legitimate. And I think um, uh, well this is exactly what Charles I said when um, when they executed him. He said well by whose law? By whose law are you, are you executing me by? Because you do everything under my law and I do everything under God's law because the the right to it in him by God with him being with him being the monarch and what they actually did they took the rights that the king had and they took those rights that the sovereign had to make the laws and
and to be above the laws. And they gave all of that to the City of London. And then they gave that from the City of London, they gave it to the Bank of England and, and to the IMF. So the rights that the king used to have, which was to make the laws, if you're making the laws, then, you know, you can't be tried in a, in a, in a court because it's a court of law where they... Where it's the crown that is prosecuting you. The crown used to be the king, but they separated it from the king and gave all those powers, gave that sovereignty to the city of London. And, this, and then the city of London became full of Jews, and they gave that power to the bank. And I've actually got um, the, well, well, the wording here as well. On, that, is, that, that is the key to understanding that the... Um, weakness of the English monarchy today, there's no doubt. It, it's virtually ineffectual, and, and it's always the will of the merchants of London that, that, that is that rules supreme in the empire, and even the queen today pays homage to the city of London, and not vice versa. Yeah, because it's to, to this, to her powers or the sovereign's powers are now invested in the crown, and the crown is the city of London. This is the actual bit um, from in the in the laws of England. It says the crown is therefore a necessary party to legislation, and neither house or parliament, whether acting alone or in conjunction with the other house, has a power of legislation without the crown. The sovereign is regarded in law as being incapable of thinking wrong or meaning to do an improper act, apart from legislative authority, which is vested in Parliament, subject to certain concurrent rights of the Crown. The law of the Constitution clothes the person of the sovereign with supreme sovereignty and preeminence. So it's all fancy wording, but it's basically saying that all the, all the powers are, are invested in the crown. And the crown is not the sovereign. The crown is the, is the city of London. And, and, and this is, this is an old law. And this is what they could, I think, Charles I could see was happening. His powers were being taken away from the monarchy and being given to the merchants and the, and the bankers. And the Jews obviously wanted, wanted some of that because that's how that's what they used to take control of um, all of the Western world, basically. Well, the Jews through ended this, up with the all same of way of doing things. And, and that process started with Cromwell, and it was assured with William III. There's no doubt. In yeah. 1688, the money changers in England followed a series of squabbles with the Stuart King. Charles II and James II and conspire with their far more successful money-changing counterparts in the Netherlands who had already set up a central bank there. They decide to finance an invasion by William of Orange of the Netherlands who they sound out and establish will be more favorable to them. The invasion is successful and William of Orange ascends to the throne of England as King William III in 1689. And we will talk about that scenario, I pray, in much more detail this afternoon. 
1694, following a costly series of wars over the last 50 years, English government officials go cap in hand to the money changers for loans necessary to pursue their political purposes. The money changers agree to solve this problem in exchange for a government-sanctioned, privately-owned bank, which could issue money created out of nothing. This was deceptively named the Bank of England, for the sole purpose of duping the general public into believing it was part of the government, which it was not. Like any other private corporation, the Bank of England sold shares to get started. The private investors, whose names were never revealed, were supposed to put up one and a quarter million pounds in gold coins to buy their shares in the bank. But only 750,000 pounds was ever received. Despite that, the bank was duly chartered and began loaning out several times the money it supposedly had in reserves, all at interest. Today it is a fractional reserve banking system and central banks are allowed to um, loan out nine and a half times what they have on deposit. That's supposed to be the guideline that they follow. Who knows? <laughs> they're never um, they're never audited, so who knows? Although the yeah, Bank of England... above that. They, they call it uh, hypothecating it <laughs> process. And it, it, it has been known to have gone up over hundreds of times. I'm the sure. That they actually hold in reserves. It's illegal for them to actually loan out the reserves. They're not allowed to loan out the funds that people have put in there now. Right. So this, even the idea of fractional reserve banking, I think that's that's a bit of a. Um, it's evil. Uh, what's the word for it? Almost like a false flag, because if people think, well, they they're just times in the amount that they've got in there because it's not likely to go. But they're not allowed to lend out what they've got in there, and there, there are, as you say, there are no records kept of it. What they do, they just when people take out a loan, they just monetize that loan. So when you when you when you take out alone, you're saying, uh, you're signing to say, I owe you such and such right. an amount, which we pay back over a certain amount of time, and they just create that. So you're the one that's actually putting all that value there. You're the one that's working to pay that back, creating something with your time and creating that currency to be, to be used, but they are the ones that are making all the money from it. They're charging right. you interest as if they had loaned you out of some money that they actually had. But what they're really doing is just publishing your promise to pay it back and That's then it. adding interest on top of it and also having all the rights of a king written into the laws so that they can't actually be taken to court for doing this because it's obviously theft. It's obviously uh, fraud and theft which they're doing to do this. But you can't take them to court because they've been given the power of the king. That's why they've got the power of the crown. The whole city has that. Every, every one of those banks that's there in that square mile, which is the city of London, has has this power to do this this crime against everyone, but they can't be taken to court because they've been put in the place of where the king would be. So they can't actually be taken to court over it. That that's the system. It's, it's far worse than just fractional reserve banking. Um, but the, you know that that was how it started off was with fractional reserve banking, and that was how the the Bank of England started off, and it, and it gradually. Um, 
changed its operation and got worse and worse as time went on. And uh, as well, as we see today, where, where we have no idea what's loaned out and no real idea of, of what's going to be paid back. It can't actually be paid back. And in order to create the money to be paid back on these loans, more and more loans have to be taken out. So everybody has to be in debt all the time and the debt has to get bigger all the time in order for the previous debt to be paid off. So this is why they say it's good to be in debt. They try to create as much debt because that's the only way that it can be paid off. And instead of it being paid off as in the money going back into the country, the money is going straight into these Jews' pockets that set up this bank in the first place with the blessing of their stooge, King William of Orange, or William III, or King Billy, whatever you like to call it. <laughs> Although the Bank of England's private investors were never revealed, one of the directors, William Patterson, stated the bank has benefit of interest in all monies which it creates out of nothing. Furthermore, the Bank of England would loan government officials as much of the new currency as they wanted as long as they secured the debt by direct taxation of the British people. The Bank of England amounted to nothing less than the legal counterfeiting of a national currency for private gain, and thus any country that would fall under, under the control of a private bank would amount to nothing more than a plutocracy, a rule by wealth, which is what we have all over Europe and, and all over the world today. Soon after the Bank of England was formed, it attacked the tally stick system, as it was money outside of the power of the money changers, just as King Henry I had intended it to be. The primary players in our discussion today, and that's the end of the quote from The History of the Money Changers by Andrew Hitchcock, which is a, a, a nice um, synopsis of the subject. The primary players in our discussion today are Charles II, his brother James II, William III of Orange, and the Jews, of course. Some further background is necessary, though, because as we tried to elucidate in our discussion of Oliver Cromwell, there was much division in England between Protestants and Catholics, and the Jews took full advantage of this situation in order to gain the advantage for themselves. And they did that very shrewdly. We shall discuss all of this a little later on. But in the meantime, I'm going to offer this immediate background from mainstream sources, hoping that that is sufficient to acquaint us with these main characters. Charles II was born in 1630, the son, of course, of Charles I. And he was restored to his father's throne after the death of Cromwell. James II, his brother, was three years younger. Both were born to Charles I and the Catholic French princess, Henry Maria. His grandmother was Marie de Medici. So I suspect, and I believe that identity Christians should perceive that his bloodline is questionable. I um, suspected that De Medici's were of Jewish blood in Italy, at least in part. 
they were the famous Florentine bankers that also gave us several popes and a whole lot of war. Upon his restoration, Charles II was very kind to the Jews and granted many charters of naturalization to Jews. He also, allegedly upon their advice, had married a Portuguese princess, Catherine of Braganza, who came to London with many more Jews in her own entourage, and a dowry which consisted mostly of Jewish debts. He had no children with her, but Charles II is said to have had at least 15 children with perhaps a dozen or so different mistresses. And if we look at the list of Charles II's children, we may realize that nearly every British nobleman today is descended from Charles II and the Dame de Cheese in one way or another. Yeah, he was he was known as as the Merry Monarch. Yeah, the Merry Monarch. He had fifteen you, wives. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, if you think of it, I mean, it's like uh, when you'd had Cromwell with his protectorate that tried to get rid of everything. It was a bit like um, prohibition in the twenties in America. And so when once Cromwell was gone. And his son was actually put there as, as the leader of the protectorate. But, uh, as I was saying before, his son had no heritage. He had no right to be there, to be ruling the country. So it all fell apart. So they had to put the parliament back in place and bring the people back in before and, and bring Charles II back in. And uh, the country was really pleased with this. And he, he, was, he wasn't actually that bad. I mean, at 14, he was leading battles. He was the last king that we that we had that actually led the army into battle, because all the kings before then had had fought. You know, they were on their horse at the front, fighting. They were, you know, they weren't just intelligent and educated men. They had to be physically fit, and, right? Uh, good, good fighting men as well. And, and that was the last king that was actually um, actually led battles. He was he was over six foot tall as well, and he looks. Um, He's probably wearing a wig in the pictures of him. But, so he is probably uh, fairly Nordic, even if he did have um, Medici blood in him. Charles II wasn't that bad, and he, had, he did have a lot of support from from the from the people, even though he he had um, this Catholic Catholic thing. So he was trying. He wanted to see, I think, Protestants and Catholics getting on. But he had this this Protestant force, the the Whigs who uh, didn't want that, and they were the ones that were even more friendly to the Jews. So though Charles II was friendly towards the Jews, I think he was friendly towards everyone, more so than just the Jews. He, I think he tried to get on with everyone and tried to be, you know, the, the sort of every man, every, man, every man to everyone and, and not try to upset people. He comes across to me as somebody who tried to get on with, with everyone. And uh, obviously trying to well, help well, the Jews out probably that, didn't help matters. That's absolutely um, plausible. I don't doubt it in any way. However, that the um, the point here is that he was friendly to the Jews, so they were staying. Even though Cromwell had let them back in, it certainly seems that Charles II had um, no designs to follow in the footsteps of his father, or perhaps was not aware 
of what his father had known and had no designs on excluding the Jews after he was restored. In fact, he was indebted to Jews. In 1670, Charles II entered into a secret alliance with his cousin, Louis XIV, who helped him in the war against the Dutch, and supposedly... Charles is said to have secretly promised to convert to Catholicism. In 1672, Charles sought religious freedom for Catholics and Protestant dissenters, meaning Protestants that weren't happy with the Bank of England, in England with a royal declaration of indulgence, which the Parliament forced him to withdraw. In 1679, the exclusion crisis began when it was found that Charles's brother and heir, James II, was a Catholic. Remember, they were both born to a Catholic mother. The crisis caused the formation of the Whig Party, which was for exclusion, and the Tory party, which was anti-exclusion. Of course, Charles sided with the Tories, and after the discovery of a plot to murder both Charles and James in 1683, some of the Whig party leaders, who were pro-exclusion of everybody but English Protestants, were executed or forced into exile. Charles dissolved the English Parliament in 1681 and ruled alone until his death on February 6th, 1685, where he is said to have converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. Charles, Charles's brother, the Catholic James II, ruled for three years and ten months until he was deposed in the so-called Glorious Revolution in December of 1688. It not it um, striking that every single revolution that, that is amenable to the desires of the Jews is given these wonderful names? Like the Rose Revolution, the Orange Revolution, the Glorious Revolution... <laughs> In yeah. April of that year, I'm sorry, Sven. No, oh, just yeah, just agreeing with you. I, I think it's just laughable, isn't it? The name they give it, the Glorious Revolution, that uh, ended up in setting up the Bank of England and uh, allowing the Jews into the country. It wasn't it certainly wasn't glorious for the British people. The, the they noblemen lost their, they lost their, their kings, their, the, this, their rightful line of kings. They lost them and they got the Jews instead. The, the English nobles that invited William III to England are called the Immortal Seven. Yeah, I don't know where they get that one from. The Immortal Seven had um, paved the way for the Glorious Revolution. That's pretty disgusting. That language is horrible. Yeah. It, it's that, That's what, what, when you bless the Jews, right? You become an immortal and... and Glorious, I guess. It's pretty sickening. Charles. Charles's brother, James II, ruled for three years and ten months until he was deposed in the so-called Glorious Revolution in December of 1688. 
In April of that year, James reissued his brother's Declaration of Indulgence, and in June, his newly born son and heir was baptized a Catholic. Religious tensions, because of that, increased. Bishops who spoke out against James were tried for sedition, who spoke out against the Declaration of Indulgence were tried for sedition. And a group of British nobles, the immortal seven, right, communicating with William III of Orange in the Netherlands, invited him to invade and overthrow the Stuart king. James II allegedly turned down help from his cousin, Louis XIV of France, being confident in his own forces that he would achieve the victory. But when William III invaded England, James had instead suffered defeat and capture. William then allowed him, not wanting to make him a martyr, ostensibly, allowed him to escape to France, where James lived out his life under a pension provided by Louis. However, William III wasn't just suddenly invited by these British nobles to come and and overthrow the Stuart king. William III had asked the British nobles many months late, many months earlier than his invasion. He had asked the British nobles for a formal invitation to invade England. William III was James's son-in-law and his cousin. He was married to James's daughter. And he had designs on the English throne for several years. The circumstances of James's reign gave him the opportunity. One of those seven nobles was Sir Thomas Osborne, who at the time was the Earl of Danby. He later became the first Duke of Leeds. During the reign of Charles II, it was Osborne who had helped end the Dutch War, so he had connections to Holland, and promoted the marriage of Mary, the daughter of Charles's brother James, to William of Orange, which happened in 1677, 11 years before William's invasion. So Thomas Osborne and um, William of Orange ostensibly had a long relationship. Several writers depict Thomas Osborne, who was a lifelong politician and bureaucrat, as a quite nefarious figure in several ways and as a very corrupt administrator. He's said to have run the English Parliament basically for his own profit for about five years. Aside from the greed of certain English noblemen like Thomas Osborne, this entire scenario, the fear of Catholicism amongst the Protestants of England, that the um, wars with the with, with the Dutch, that the troubles between William of Orange that we'll get into a little later and and the French king. All of this is part of a much greater struggle which was going on for quite some time on the continent between Catholics and Protestants and Protestant princes against the Catholic kings of France and Spain. And I'm going to give a um, couple of 
a couple of sentences from an article which is available online entitled Calvinism and Arminianism. And I'm going to quote, It was Charles V who presided over the Diet of Worms, we know him from the history of Martin Luther, and who, at its convening, intended to have Martin Luther burnt at the stake for heresy. And of course, that did not happen. Charles V, he was um, the king of practically everywhere. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, and he inherited the thrones in Germany, Portugal, Spain, through all of the intermarriage amongst the nobility. He he was the um, beneficiary of several of the thrones of Europe. Charles's son, Philip II, succeeded him and sought to outdo his father in exterminating the heretics from the Netherlands. In 1568, he sanctioned a sentence passed by the Inquisition of Madrid, of Madrid, which included the whole population of the Netherlands in the crime of treason against God and the King. The chief inquisitor was zealous to carry out the sentence, remarking, His Majesty had rather see all his territories deserted and uncultivated than to suffer one heretic to remain in them. The Inquisition in the Netherlands grew in intensity, as it did in France, but despite this, the number of Protestant Christians grew. Under the leadership of William of Orange, the northern provinces of the Netherlands revolted against this bloodthirsty tyranny and gained independence, forming a federation in 1579. So this is going on in in the um, in the background, and this is sometime before William III. But this is going on in, in before William III became the King of England. But this is going on in the background, and this this struggle between these Protestant princes and kings in Europe and these Catholics is part of what's being played out, not only in Holland, but also in Germany, in Prussia, in England especially, because England did have a large population which still considered themselves Catholic. In my ongoing series on Martin Luther, given at Christogenia, it has been shown that Martin Luther would never have gotten anywhere without the assistance of the German humanists, and that the German humanists were always friendly and had been staunch defenders of the religious liberties of the Jews. So here we have William III, William of Orange, and Oliver Cromwell before him, who were also allies of the Jews. While it is true that the Stuart kings were friendly to the Jews, at least Charles II was, and, and James II, the Jews themselves had been much better accepted and had been granted much greater liberties under the Protestants. At this very time, 
the Catholics in Spain and in France were persecuting Jews and the Jews were supporting the Protestants. The Protestants seemed to have been willing partners with the Jews because the Protestants as well as the Jews in in the Netherlands, in France, in Spain, in Portugal had been targets of the Inquisition and they had suffered greatly under the reign of Mary, Bloody Mary, right? And in the century before, before this. This is the two-edged sword. We appreciate our Protestant heritage, which freed us from the tyranny of the medieval Catholic Church. However, the Protestants, being in league with the Jews, we are now under a tyranny of the Jewish central banking system. We went from one tyranny to another tyranny. All the while thinking that we were free, we only became slaves to a different master. Because of the victory of Protestantism over the Roman Church, not all writers aware of Jewish treachery are even hostile to men like William III. And I'll give one example from John Beatty in his book, Iron Curtain Over America. And he writes that the Hohenzollern monarchy, speaking of the Prussians, right, was the strongest Protestant power on the continent. And its relations with the governments of both England and America were intimate and friendly. The royal family of England several times married into the Prussian dynasty. Frederick William II of Brandenburg, Prussia, later to be Frederick, first king of Prussia, helped William of England of Orange, the arch enemy of Louis XIV of France, to land in England, where he became co-sovereign in 1688 with his wife, Mary Stuart, the daughter of James II, and a friend and helper of the American colonies. So here we have a conspiratorial history writer who is actually appreciative for different reasons of this Protestant William of Orange because he was a supporter of Protestantism and they were supporters of the colonies in America but on the other side of the coin he allowed the Jews to have their central bank in England and sold us all into monetary slavery for the last 400 years, practically, 340 years, maybe. So you can see some similar things back then to what was going on today as well. And uh, when, when you were mentioning there that in Holland they got rid of the monarchy or whatever, they had still had um, William of Orange, but they kept creating these new titles for him. Um, Stadtholder or stateholder was one of them and it's almost like um, prizes that the Jew, you know how much the Jews love to give out prizes their prize giving ceremonies the Oscars, BAFTAs always giving out awards and prizes to one another well they were giving out loads of loads of awards and titles and just making them up uh, which they were giving to William III this title Stadtholder which they wanted everybody to call him the title was abolished uh, after he died and he was also accused of being homosexual. 
there were lots of pamphlets that were produced that alleged that he was homosexual. So in the same way today that they will promote the most degenerate people and uh, hand out all these awards, they were doing that then with, with this William of Orange. And uh, the way that they've, where they've controlled the, the, the histories that come down to us, they've made him out to be this, this great figure when he wasn't. Uh, he, he instituted the bank. He was a homosexual, and he was a usurper. And the people, the the the, the glorious revolution was just put us into slavery. And the, and the people, the traitors that went over there to invite him to come and invade Britain, as you just mentioned earlier, they are called the Immortal Seven. So they've twisted twisted history and uh, promoted these degenerate figures. And they were doing it all the way back then, four hundred years ago. And now it's it's right the way through society, and all the time we see these degenerate people that are being being promoted. But that's uh, just to to add a little bit more to the story, to to flesh it out some more. And this William of Orange was a, was a really bad guy. He's honoured with the Orange Parades in Northern Ireland. But uh, that was be because um, the Irish were trying to free themselves from from Britain and uh, he helped them out there's uh, this Battle of the Boyne I think so that, that's why he's he's honoured in Northern Ireland because you hear of these orange parades that they have but uh, so that that's the reason for that but apart from that I mean the, the guy is just he's a, a nightmare really <laughs> following on from Oliver Cromwell and then William of Orange and then that was it really for the monarchy All, there's never been any decent kings since then they've all sort of followed that that um, that template really of just being subservient to the Jews and he also he gave away all these powers to the parliament they dissolved the the Whigs was the group that actually put the bank into power and once the bank was in power they dissolved the parliament and then they when he opened up the parliament again it, it was the Whigs that were in control and he signed this um Bill of, Bill of Rights, which gave all the power to Parliament and, and to the city, and the people that fought against it, the Jacobites, they were saying that power comes from God. You know, it's a divine right to rule that comes from God. It doesn't come from Parliament. Parliament doesn't say who's the one to rule us. It's God that says who's the one to rule us. And that was what the, the big uh, beef was that they had with them. So you had this new version of Christianity, Protestantism, which was bringing in democracy, basically, and bringing in the rule of um, the ruled, which is what democracy is, a rule by the mob, as opposed to the aristocracy instituted by the church. But of course, once the aristocracy is, is uh, mixed in with the Jews, which is what again also what happened is Jews once they came in they interbred with all the aristocracy anyway so there wasn't a, really an aristocracy left and they'd got rid of all the, all the kings by that time and put their, their own line on the throne that they wanted on the throne rather than the legitimate heirs so, so all this helped them to sort of to take over and it all goes back to, to traitors bringing in foreigners from the outside William was a foreigner from the outside. He had no issue. He had no no one to inherit his throne. And it was written into the Bill of Rights who was going to be then made into the king. 
and it certainly wasn't going to be the Stuart kings or anyone related to them. It was the Hanover kings from elsewhere, distantly related, in part to make sure that the Catholics wouldn't get in again, but also to make certain that it was it was people that were menial to, or friendly towards the Jews and the city of London and democracy and everything that we have today, which is why all the kings and the royalty since then, none of them have stood up for the people against it, because they were put in power by the, by the money power, whereas up until that point, you still had people that were being made head of the country because they went back to these royal families that have been blessed by God, you know, thousands of years ago, and told that they would be a royal line. That's, that's the difference. Instead of it coming from God, it, it, it's the people are being put in power by man. And that was the last real rebellion against that, was it was the Jacobite rebellion. And these Jacobites in Scotland, and there were, there were massacres in, in Scotland as well, where he behaved atrociously. It's very similar to Oliver Cromwell in Ireland. Oliver Cromwell in Ireland just massacred two old villages of, of Irishmen uh, under a white flag, killed a man, woman, child, and beast, wiped them all out. And nobody was ever held to account for that. This was the sort of thing that was coming in with democracy and, and the rule of the mob. But of course, you know, it's the same thing that happened with the Bolshevik revolution. Where you've got the Jews saying, well, it's going to be you, you're the, it's going to be the rule of the people now. Whereas it's not the rule, rule of the people, and, and the people that the ruled can't be but ruler and ruled both at the same time. You know, it's, it's impossible. You can't be both sovereign and subject at the same time. And that's what the people fell for. They fell for the idea that, that we could all be in the position of kings with democracy. And it's all tied up together and it all goes back to to this time. That's why it's such a fascinating period to, to look at, Bill. What well, well, it's been tried. It was tried Jews. here in America. Yeah, hidden behind it. it. It always fails. Self-rule always fails because money, greed, lust always prevail. That, that's the way it is. That, that's the, the law of the fleshly nature of man. The um, I, I should have clarified one thing. What one thing that the William of Orange in in the um, rebellion against Philip II is actually the brother of of William III's great great grandfather. He inherited. Orange from his from from his father through his father's great grandfather. So so that's how that worked. I, I should have clarified that. But I wanted to illustrate the um, what was going on with the Netherlands and and with the House of Orange, right? And the pitting of the Protestants against the Catholics at this time. Under Charles V and, and Philip II, the Spanish Inquisition was ongoing. The Inquisition lasted until well into the 18th century in most of Europe. The Spanish Inquisition was ongoing. Many of the Jews had fled to the Netherlands. And, of course, I can't prove it, but... After that, after many of the Jews had fled to the Netherlands from Spain and Portugal, that's when the Netherlands was broken free from the Spanish crown and had had become 
quote-unquote independent. And that's what the House of Orange had benefited from. That's what William of Orange, William III of Orange, had 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 benefited from and how he came into his principality. Oh, I just so, want something else, Bill, as well. Where he um, married into the Stuart line, he married the daughter of King Charles or the daughter of James. So literally James. he could say, well, I'm the King of England, but I have married the daughter of the rightful King of England. That was the same thing that the, that the Romans were doing. The Romans were marrying the daughters of the British kings so that they could then be classed as as the, as a king as well as the governor of England way back that we went into in the first episode and that's how come um, King Arthur some people say well he was Roman but he was also Celtic because these Romans sought legitimacy by marrying the daughters of the British kings and that's exactly what um, William of Orange did there trying to get legitimacy to be the king of England by marrying the daughter of um, the rightful Eng English king so that he ha he could say that he you know he was married to her, so he, so he could be king, because they did have to actually they they did have to have a joint rule. It wasn't him on his own; it, it was the king and the queen. But uh, it's interesting that it's the same thing that the, that the Romans did, because they they got rid of their own royalty, they got rid of the Tarquins, and uh, they they didn't have royalty anymore in Rome. So they were keen to marry into the. Uh, British royalty line, so that they had a claim to the aristocracy. Because once they had done that, uh, the chances were that they would be made Caesar or Governor or, or what have you. Uh, you can you can look through the names of them, and, and it's the same names as the ones that married the daughters of the British kings. So um, uh, Wilson and Blackett have done lots of lots of uh, research. Sorry, uh, do do continue on. Well, well, I have a passage, and, and because I like to pull my information from disparate sources, I have a passage from a book which was written by a Protestant minister in New York in the late 1890s, and the man's name was Madison Peters, and the book is called Justice to the Jew, just not in the sense that we would like. It was actually a um, a book, the entire book is a groveling panegyric, applauding the Jews for all their wonderful contributions to society, as if we would have accomplished nothing at all without the devils. This, um, Madison Peters seems to be a forerunner to John Hagee, and he says in his book, with the settlement in the 17th century of the Spanish and Portuguese exiles in Amsterdam and Hamburg began the prosperity of those cities. Isaac Suasso created Baron Averne de Gras, and, and he was actually created a baron after William III came to the throne of England as repayment, right? Isaac Suasso advanced two million guilders to William of Orange when he went to England to seek the crown, saying, If you succeed, you will repay me. If not, I shall lose it. Francesco Mello assisted the state of Holland with his wealth, while De Pinto left several millions for charitable 
purposes. And I'll skip a line or two. And he says, the Texeras and Daniel Abenzer of Hamburg advanced money to the king of Poland, while Solomon de Medina, the London merchant, was knighted by Queen Anne. And, and he's speaking in glowing terms about all these Jews and the wonderful things they did, and wouldn't dare admit that all they really did was enslave all of Europe by that their gratuities and, and their gifts to the noble classes. They're ingratiating themselves with the kings, queens, and princes. And even Martin Luther warned against that. Don't accept gifts from the Jews because they're seeking to take over your kingdom. And it works every time. And Christian noblemen fall for it every time. So this... um unexpected source basically corroborates what we're about to um, read in a book called Deadlier Than the H-Bomb. And this book was written by Leonard Young, who joined the Royal Engineers in 1919 and ended his career as a commander in the RAF. Royal Air Force in 1945. And the subject of the book is the destruction of Britain under the thumb of the Jewish bankers. And I'm going to read this book from chapter 4, The Jews in Britain. And it's really a pretty good synopsis and overview of the Jewish history of the period. So we're going to wind back just a little bit and go from the beginning of the chapter. When I say wind back, I mean chronologically. And he says, The Jews now come into the British story. In 1066, when William of Normandy came to England, he had Jews in his train. It is pretty certain that these Jews would have been responsible for the idea of compiling the Doomsday Book in order to acquire a complete inventory of the country to give information to guide them in exploiting it by means of usurious money lending in addition to its purposes for taxes. They became unpopular with the English, but appeared to have stayed in that country under the protection of successive kings, who probably found them useful for revenue purposes, until, in 1290, that great king and man of vision, Edward I, decided that it was necessary to expel them from the country for many grave offenses, endangering the safety and realm of his realm and lieges. Twenty years later, Edward II suppressed the Knights Templar, who were the bankers of the period and also the ancestors of Freemasonry. As a result, England was prosperous during the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries and was known as Merry England. No Jews. Later, the Jews were also expelled from France. The Knights Templar having also been suppressed as in England. The result in France was also great prosperity until the end of the 18th century when the secret societies and Ashkenazim Jews ruined it with the French Revolution. After that, the Jews got a grip on the country and it has been in trouble ever since. A study of Nesta Webster's books on secret societies and subversive movements and the French Revolution are of the greatest importance in connection with this. They are a most exhaustive 
exhaustive study of the subject and one which is essential to our understanding of what is going on in the world. One slight criticism of Mrs. Webster's work is that she does not seem to have realized the anti-Christian significance of British masonry or its real connection behind the scenes with other secret societies such as the Grand Orient the lodge in French which which actually launched the French Revolution. It would probably astonish at least 99% of British Freemasons to be told that it is anti-Christian and in essence Judaic. The vast majority just become Masons and leave it at that. They have no understanding of fundamental values and do not think of investigating. Most of them join because they have been told it is a good thing and that it will help them in their trade or profession. But, unlike all other secret societies, it is the final resort under Jewish control and can therefore be used to exert influence on men in all walks of life and usually in leading positions, to take courses which are designed to lead, in the long run, to the destruction of the Gentile and, in particular, of British and Nordic power and prestige and eventual eventual complete domination of the world by the Sanhedrin, or the inner ring of international financiers, or the elders of Zion, or whatever you would like to call the body of about 300 men referred to by Disraeli, ostensibly meaning the Jewish historian Isaac Disraeli, and Walter Rathenau. Investigation shows that movements like Theosophy, Grand Orient, Freemasonry, Freemasonry, Illuminism, the Templars, the Rosicrucians, etc., derive their ideas from the Jewish Kabbalah. It is true that many of the leading lights in these movements have been Gentiles. In fact, Adam Weishaupt, the Bavarian Illuminist, seems to have been the chief architect of the modern secret society movements, but the control in all cases eventually passes into the hands of the Sanhedrin. Adam Weishaupt was actually a Jew, by all the other reports I have ever read. In fact, in the final analysis, it all comes from Satan, as is proved by the black magic basis, although normally this is known only to the most secret and advanced adepts. It is to be noted that the works of these secret societies never advanced, but are always detrimental to the Nordic peoples. They are always against individual and national sovereignty. On the other hand, they always work to further destructive purposes by means of nihilism, socialism, or communism. Also, they are always in favor of world Jewry purposes and were, for some time, of pan-Germanism because Germany was the base of the Jewish financiers and pan-Germanism was a means of greatly weakening the Nordic peoples and of spreading the chaos necessary for the breeding of communism. And I believe he's talking about how the Prussian monarchy was propped up by the Jews. It has been stated above that the Reformation 
was really the result in England of the age-long resistance of the British church to Roman domination. But this does not mean that Britain was not influenced in any way by the continental movements of Luther and Calvin. Calvin went to Geneva from France, where his name was spelled Cauin, C-A-U-I-N, possibly a French effort to spell Cohen. The Jews claim, and I've heard that story in other sources, but I have not yet seen it substantiated. The Jews claim that he was of Jewish extraction. An unfortunate result of his efforts, as far as Britain was concerned, was that he organized great numbers of revolutionary orators who were spread about Western Europe with a good sprinkling in England and Scotland. These men laid the groundwork for revolution under a cloak of religious fervor. It should be noted that this religious fervor did not show much of the love of Christ. It was much more inclined to display the rigid legalism of Mosaic law and of the influence of the Talmud (coughs) and to contract all religion into rigid observance of the Sabbath, a Jewish ordinance and regarded as such by Calvin. In fact, it was more like Judaism than Christianity. And Judaism be it remembered, was based on the Talmud and on the Shulchan Aruch and inculcated a spirit teaching that all non-Jews are animals. Although they had been expelled, it is clear that the Jews retained or in time regained contacts in England because during the reign of Charles I, they organized the English Revolution by similar methods to those used later to organize the French Revolution. And we had covered this last week, or or in our last segment, from other sources. In both cases, the revolutions were brought about by the activities of secret societies and the use of mobs, organized and paid from behind the scenes in London and Paris, respectively. In the case of Paris, at least, the men who made up the ruffian crowd were definitely imported into Paris for the purpose. Cromwell was financed by the Amsterdam Jewish rabbi Manasseh ben Israel and Fernandez Carvajal, the great Jew, as he was called, who was chief contractor of the New Model Army. It was the Jews who insisted upon and had the power to bring about, through the control of money, the execution, in fact the murder, of Charles I, in order then to be able to regain admission to England, which they did illegally, because the law of exclusion was never lifted, illegally under Cromwell. The levelers and the rationalists in the army had the same doctrines as the French revolutionaries, and they were what we today know as communists. The evidence for all this is available from Jewish sources. The writing of Isaac Disraeli, the father of Benjamin, the Earl of Beaconsfield, the writings of Benjamin himself, and in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which fell into Gentile hands in 1897, 
and in which is the sentence. Remember the French Revolution. The secrets of its preparation are well known to us, for it was entirely the work of our hands. But Cromwell, even with the assistance of his Geneva sympathizers, dispensing the Judaic barbarity, failed to subdue Scotland, where Charles II was still called king. It is of interest that Charles accepted the Presbyterian form of Christianity for Scotland, and that this form is probably more like the old British church than that of any other kind in modern times. Steadily, the feeling in England came round to the Scottish point of view, and on Cromwell's death, all Britain welcomed the restoration of Charles II. Unfortunately, Charles had no idea of the Jewish problem or plans. He was only born in um, 1630, and he was only 19 when he was restored. He was a young man. He was a young boy when his father was put to death. The wisdom and experience of Edward I had become lost in centuries of segregation from the Jewish poison and the enemies of kingship were now entrenched within his kingdom. Charles was, however, aware of the dangers of a popish plot, cry and worked against it. But with the accession of James II, Charles's brother, the Jews developed propaganda against the papacy and got the people divided on it. While, under cover of it, plans were prepared for placing the control of finances of both England and Scotland in their hands. The chief figure amongst these, amongst those who deserted James at the crucial moment, was John Churchill, first Duke of Marlborough. According to the Jewish Encyclopedia, this Duke, for many years, received not less than 6,000 pounds a year from the Dutch Jew, Solomon Medina. For further evidence on what is said above, and I'm still quoting Leonard Young, Reference should be made to the Nameless War by the late Captain Ramsey, Nesta Webster's books, and Isaac Disraeli's two-volume Life of Charles I, published in 1851 and referred to by Ramsey. And we had quoted from Captain Ramsey in our discussion of Oliver Cromwell. Are you with me, Sven? Yes. <clears throat> yes. Sorry, okay. Just uh, for some, I'm pressing the mute button. There. Yeah, I was, I was still with you. I mean, that that chap that you were just talking about then, Solomon uh, Medina, uh, the one that he was he was paying. That was one of the ones that um, William of Orange gave all these honours to. There was a lot. All the people that, that helped him. A lot of these Jews that helped him, and the people that were put in place by the Jews. He was rewarded with all these different honours. Uh, making them lords and making them dukes and various other uh, rewards basically for the help that they had given him to take down the country and it's a good um, summary of it all this it, it explains it well
and that's all I'd have to add to it. Anyway, it was, it's just that it wasn't just him that he was rewarded. There were there were others that were rewarded as well. And again, this is a, this is a Jewish thing: rewarding the people that work for them with with all these prizes. So you see the same thing today with these big prize giving ceremonies that they give. They get quite the sick of them because you know it's all just backslapping and you know just rewarding their own people. Here we shall present a different Jewish source. A Jewish source, nonetheless. I hate quoting Jews, but it, it's um to see mainstream Jewish sources basically admit this history. They don't even try to hide it anymore, right? That they admit this history, and that shows the um the boldness of the Jews today that they believe that they have such a firm grip on control of our society that they don't have to hide any longer and this is published right out there on the internet if I publish it I'm an extremist if they publish it well it, it, it's okay that this is um a source which corroborates Leonard Young which is a Jewish encyclopedia article on England written by a Jew named Joseph Jacobs and available on the internet. The source is quite candid in many aspects concerning the readmission of the Jews to England. We have um, Leonard Young saying here that the Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill, now John Churchill was an English page and he was elevated to a very high position by his patron, James II. He owes James II the fact that, that he is in position to be a duke. And he was a member of James, James's household, and he turned on James and went over to William III. And, and basically that makes him a traitor. Now we see why, where Leonard Young is telling us that he was being paid £6,000 a year from the Dutch Jew, Solomon Medina. And now we have this um, Jewish Encyclopedia article, and I'm going to quote it. And speaking of William III, it says, Though it is reported that he was assisted in his descent upon England by a loan of two million golden from Antonio Lopez Suasso, who was afterward made Baron Averne de Graaf. He did not interfere when in 1689 some of the chief Jewish merchants of London were forced to pay the duty levied on the goods of aliens, although he refused a petition from Jamaica to expel the Jews. His tenure of the throne, however, brought about a closer connection between the London and the Amsterdam communities, and thus aided in the transfer of the center of European finance from the Dutch to the English capital. Now, the project was initiated under Cromwell, but the fact that it continued more fervently after Cromwell's death, to me, proves that Cromwell was not the plan's true author. The Jews were the author. Cromwell was the tool. The writing, the history, proves that. 
if you read between the lines. Early in the 18th century, getting back to our quote from this Jew, the Jewish community of London comprised representatives of the chief Jewish financiers of Northern Europe, including the Mendes, the Costas, Abudientes, Salvadors, Lopezes, Juansecas, and Sexes, Sykes, I guess, S-E-I-X-A-S. A small German contingent had arrived and established a synagogue in 1692, but they were of little consequence and did not figure in the relations between the Jews and the government. The utility of the larger Jewish merchants was recognized. Marlborough, in particular, made great use of the services of Sir Solomon de Medina, and indeed was publicly charged with taking an annual subvention from him. So he's, this Jew is basically, and in very different language, so the one source could not come from the other. This Jew is basically supporting everything that our source, our quote-unquote conspiratorial history source, is saying about these Jews getting back into England and, and corrupting the nobility under James II in order to overthrow him and install William III. He goes on to say, These merchants are estimated to have brought into the country a capital of one and a half million pounds, which had increased by the middle of the century to five million pounds. As early as 1723, a special act of parliament was passed which permitted them to hold land on condition of their taking oath when registering their title. They were allowed to omit the words upon the faith of a Christian. And my quote goes on, but we certainly see that the Jew is corroborating our so-called conspiratorial historian, Leonard Young. I'll just, I'll just say that, Bill, those oaths, you know, they protected us for so long, you know, in actually having a Christian oath. And you can see there that they were prevented from actually buying any, buying land in the country up until the 18th century because they had to take a Christian oath in order to purchase the land. They were kept out of Parliament until the 19th century because they had to take a Christian oath in order to get into Parliament. These oaths were important, especially when everybody believed in them. When they believed that if they broke their oath, that they'd taken their oath to God, and God was going to punish them if they broke their oath. And the whole of society was built upon... The, uh, taking oaths of office so that you could trust the people that were in office and nowadays where we teach everybody to um, be an atheist uh, oaths don't mean anything anymore so how can you trust anybody in office whereas back then you could trust people that were in office because they'd taken an oath and it was when the Jews came in that they started changing these oaths demanding that they be changed so that so that they could be allowed in and once, once they had changed it that was when People know, like in Parliament, people no longer had to take an oath to uphold Christian laws. So the laws started changing. And here you've got, you've got, um, changing the oath so that they can buy bits of land. It's a, it's a, quite an important thing, this, these oaths, I think, the, the, the oath of office that, that people used to take. And these people that talk about how, you know, separating church and state and you 
shouldn't have to take an oath to God and, and what have you. I don't, or people that are anti-Christianity and anti-God, I don't think they understand, you know, just the, how, just how important it was, the running of our society, to have people believing in God so that when they took an oath, they meant what they said. I mean, even court cases used to be done on the on the oath of twelve people. If twelve people would swear an oath that you would not have been a likely person to have committed that crime, then you were found innocent of that crime because a man's oath was trusted. If you could get twelve people to swear on oath that you would not, have, you know, you're not the sort of person to commit that crime, you would go free. And that was the Anglo-Saxon law was based on that, and you'd, for a different. Um, Members in society required the oath of a different number of people, uh, depending on what their position in society was, what, what their worth was. These oaths are really important. Uh, people don't, when they take God out of things, they don't realise just how essential it is just to the running of all our society. Well, today in America, oaths have become virtually meaningless. Yeah. They become meaningless. Everybody operates for his own gain, period. No fear of God anymore. When they, of if they take an oath, there's, there's no fear of God in them anymore. Right. At one time, a man's word and, and his oath were, uh, he would die before he broke them. Not anymore. Now it's, they're, they're just cheap words. To continue with um, our source, Leonard Young, after the Amsterdam Jews had successfully financed the rebellion against James II in 1689, the chief of them, Solomon Medina, who was later knighted, right, followed William of Orange to England. The result was to bring about a closer connection between the London and Amsterdam Jewish communities and the transfer of the center of finance from the Dutch to the English capital. According to Benjamin Disraeli, its practice in England has been equally injurious. The real objective of the Glorious Revolution was achieved in 1694, when the royal consent was given for the setting up of the Bank of England, and he puts England in quotes, and the institution of the national debt. This charter handed, handed over to an anonymous and private committee the royal prerogative of creating money and converted the basis of wealth to gold. The money thus created was negative money. It didn't really exist. A book entry, a debt which, by virtue of the mechanism itself, could never be repaid. And that's because if every single pound or dollar coming into your economy demands interest, there's never enough money in the economy to pay back the principal plus the interest, right? So you can't repay it. It's not possible. And, and that's theoretical, but in reality, what it does is the formula works out so that the person loaning the money on usury becomes wealthier and wealthier and everybody else who has to borrow to get money becomes poorer and poorer. There's no way around it. 
it cannot be avoided. So the people that have the license to issue the currency, sooner or later, are the ones who own everything. That's the inevitable result. The money was created was created as negative money, a book entry, a debt which, by virtue of the mechanism itself, could never be repaid. The charter enabled the international money lenders to secure their loans on the taxes of the country instead of on the doubtful undertaking of some ruler or potentate, which was all the security they could previously obtain. And that's all they deserved to obtain, because they were basically loaning out money to rulers and potentates based on a perspective of somebody else's losses due to a war. And, and that's how they were making their money. From then on, economic machinery was set in motion, which ultimately reduced all wealth to the fictitious terms of gold, which the Jews control and drained away the lifeblood of the land, which was the birthright of the British peoples. Shortly afterwards, the political and economic union of England and Scotland was forced on Scotland with the wholesale corruption and, in defiance of the adverse vote of every county and borough, the main objects of the, uni of the Union, suppression of the Royal Mint in Scotland and Scottish responsibility too for the national debt were then achieved, widening the base that they could collect from. The grip of the moneylenders was now complete throughout Great Britain, but there was a danger that the members of the new joint parliament might, in time, in the spirit of their ancestors, challenge this. So, to provide against this, the party system was brought into being, thus frustrating true national reaction and enabling the wire-pullers to divide and rule. The financiers used their newly established power to ensure that their own men and their own policies should secure the limelight and that they should have sufficient support from their newspapers, pamphlets, and banking accounts to carry the day. This state of affairs is still in full blast today, and it's always amazed me how rapidly and readily the American revolutionaries in the formation of a new government accepted the party system. In the democracy of ancient Athens, for many hundreds of years, political parties were forbidden. In the Republic of Rome, which lasted for many hundreds of years, for about 500 years perhaps, parties were seen properly as conspiracies. If you were forming a political party, you were forming a conspiracy against all of the people of the Republic who were not a part of your party. That's why they were banned in Athens. Parties, the party system, is an evil, wicked system. As Captain Ramsey points out, Gold was soon to become the basis of loans, ten times the size of the amount deposited. That is, 100 pounds in gold would be legal security for 1,000 pounds of loans. And that's the fractional reserve banking system that we all 
live under today. At 3%, therefore, 100 pounds in gold could earn 30 pounds interest annually, and with no more trouble to the lender than the keeping of a few ledger entries. The owner of 100 pounds of land, however, must still work every hour of daylight in order to make perhaps 4%. It is inevitable that the moneylenders must become millionaires on those who own and work the land. The Englishmen and Scotsmen must be ruined. The process has continued inexorably until now, when it is nearly completed. And I guess um, Leonard Young saw the end of this beast a little sooner than we've experienced. It has been, I think he's writing this, in or about 1956. It has been hypocritically camouflaged by clever propaganda as helping the poor by mulching the rich. In reality, it is nothing of the kind. In the main, it has been the deliberate ruination of the landed classes, the leaders among the Gentiles, and their supplanting by Jew financiers and their hangers-on. The Whig philosophy, descended from Calvinism and other Puritan movements, is always the attack of the black-coated theorist on the practical man, such as the farmer, the sailor, the engineer, and the pioneer. Basically, it denies personal initiative and judgments and substitutes a set of transcendental values incapable of, and indeed, almost resenting any attempt at a proof. Once this is understood, it becomes clear how the philosophy is essential to the supremacy of the financial system and those who control it. What appear to be failures of policy are really the greatest successes, the greatest successes for our enemies. Words become reversed. Stealing is a crime, but unnecessary taxation is statesmanship. With the return of the Jews, Freemasonry also started and developed to such an extent that the country is now riddled with it, particularly in the higher grades of government service and the Church of England. And and it's really revolting for a a, a so-called churchman to be or cleric to be a Freemason. That that's really that that's wow. Sven, do you have any comments in response? Yeah, to well that? I mean, this is why usury was seen as, as just as bad as murder. It was a really serious crime. It was a mortal sin. If you were if you were caught loaning anything out of use, then you forfeited all your possessions. Because it, it was taking back the time that God had given to somebody for nothing. You had put no effort into it, no work into it yourself. And what you were producing, you were taking from somebody else. You were taking all of their work for doing nothing yourself, just for lending something out. And it takes away the whole um, the whole point of charity, of, of giving something away to help your fellow man. If you're expecting to be gaining gaining from it, if you're expecting to get something else from it, it, de- it destroys the whole point of um, charity. And your charity is is a really important commandment: is to show charity to your fellow man, 
And the, and the upshot of all this legalizing usury is, is charities and our businesses that are just there to make money for the people that work there. And, and assuage the guilt in people that wish to give something, they think, I'll just give something to this charity. Instead of actually being charitable to their fellow man, or somebody that needs it, and the, the rich were always seen as necessary so that they could help out the poor, and the poor were always seen as necessary so that the, the rich man could learn the, the blessing that is being charitable. You know, you're never going to get rid of all the poor people. You're always going to have poor people. You're always going to have people that fall on, fall on hard luck. But the, the whole message from the Bolshevik communist Marxist message is that uh, the, the poor, you can make the poor equal to the rich by just taking it all from the rich. And of course, that's just theft. You know, if somebody gives something away because they want to give it away, that's a different matter. But if you've got the state taking it from them, then it's just theft. And this idea that the uh, the kings could borrow whatever they wanted and then tax the the people to then pay back their bankers. Uh, this is this is the system that we have today. This is what the taxes are. Taxes used to be for in a case of war. If, if money was, was required, then people could put, there was a small tax that was levied on things to pay for the war effort. It wasn't, there must be a certain amount of tax to pay back the bankers. It's, it's disgusting. It, it really is. This usury itself is such a, a wicked sin. And what, what they've done is they've changed the very meaning of the word so that now people think that usury is excessive interest. It's not. It's, it's any interest whatsoever that's put on, on... Originally, it was on anything whatsoever as well. It wasn't just on money. It was if you loaned out anything. You shouldn't expect to get something back. You should be pleased to have the opportunity to help out your fellow man by loaning him something. Now, all these laws from the, from the Bible, they are so sensible. It's like the seven-year jubilee. That prevents anybody ever having one of these long mortgages hung around their necks. Because you can never have a, have a, have a loan that goes on for longer than, than seven years. And there's no interest that's supposed to be put on that loan either. And your land is supposed to remain in your family. That's not supposed to, you're not supposed to be able to sell your land. You're supposed to be handed that down from father to son. And that was the way that it was in Britain. Until, uh, well, until William of Normandy came over. The land was yours to, to, to pass down. And uh, uh, Alfred the Great made certain that that was in these laws. But they gradually cha changed these laws. And once the Jews came in and set this bank up, the, the banks had the ability to make the laws, which is how it is now. The, all the abilities that you would think that the sovereign would have has been handed to the city of London and handed to these banks. And we have the illusion that we're in control through voting, through these, this party system that we have. I, I, I don't know if, 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 this is, if this is true, but would you say that the party system goes back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Bill, to the two parties back then? Well, well, that's certainly representative of a party system. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. That they um, they decided the affairs of Judea. That they that they clung to one another and battled against the other party. I, I mean, the party system is older than that because it had already been banned in 
Athens in in the um, in the fifth century BC. So it goes back before the time of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but it, it's um, by free white governments. It's never in ancient times been seen as beneficial. The Romans and the Greeks despised the party system and understood that the party system would undermine their republics rather than assist them. There's no doubt. Yeah, if you've got one, you've got one party, then you're, you're just going to be doing the best for your people and for your nation. If you've got a party, you're doing what's best for the party, and, and you've got to try and make the other party look bad. If it's all one party, the fascist state, as it were, and the same as the old republics, you're doing what's best for your people. I mean, I've read that the, the right and the left and the party system goes back to the French Revolution. And I thought, well, it obviously goes back further than that because it's Pharisees and Sadducees. And now you're saying it goes back even further than that right. because of this um, Greece thing. So there's obviously been subversive traitors around trying to, trying to get this system in place for years. Uh, and now they've pretty much succeeded in, in imposing it all, all around the world. Well, well, right. The party system is should properly be looked at as a, um, a a party should properly be looked at as a conspiracy. So the party system is a group of competing conspiracies, and each particular group wants to exert its influence on the larger nation or the larger entity. So the people of that persuasion band together so that they could project a voice bigger than the voice they would have as individuals. It's it's really a system of conspiracies, one against the other. It's really... The party system is evil. I was going to say, I think back in Greece, if you had... um if you actually had meetings in your home instead of actually being out where people could hear what you were saying, I think that was seen as a as a conspiracy. That was a, a crime as well because everybody should hear what what you've got to say. If you've got something good to say, everybody should hear it. If well, you've got well, something bad to say about others, then it's a conspiracy. Livy, the Roman historian, wrote that of ancient Rome explicitly that men meeting inside of each other's homes was seen as a conspiracy. They were seen as conspirators and treated as criminals. Another um, an, another behavior which is common today, which the Romans of the Republic saw as criminal, was when a politician promised anybody a benefit at the expense of the public. That was considered stealing. They would take that politician and hang his ass. They would hang him. You didn't promise anybody anything at the expense of the public because it was criminal. You're stealing from the rest of the people to favor a certain individual so that you could benefit as a politician. That was seen as a crime, and that's correct. It should be seen as a crime. But today, people are just stuck on stupid. 
I don't think, I don't think that's been done. And, and uh, since the time of Alfred the Great, apparently he hung uh, 100 judges for uh, for perverting the course of justice and finding in favour of the rich uh, for for money, for bribes. <laughs> that's and another he thing. He hung 100 judges for that. There's nothing new under the sun. That, that That's something that's discussed in, in the books of Amos and Micah and the prophets. That's something that the children of Israel are criticized for, I think, in Micah chapter 3, but I know it's in there somewhere. Judging for profit rather than for for justice. Well, that's a whole other subject, but the, the crown is a part of the judging system. And it is all set up for profit. And that's what all these statutes are about, is, is making profit for the criminal justice system, rather than actually finding justice for anyone. So we have all these statutes and fines. And this comes into it as well, the uh, changing of the justice system and uh, allowing there to be summary justice instead of having a jury of your peers. And when um, all these judges, they, they work for the crown, they swear their oaths to the crown, and what they're swearing their oaths to are the banks. So this is another um, result of this takeover, basically, by by money, uh, the money power. Instead of having the, the God-given society run along the lines and the outlines that we were given in our Christian Bible. Absolutely. No doubt. Thank you for joining me, Sven, and, and we will continue this discussion or, or some semblance of it on September 20th, I'm going... Look forward to it. Thanks, Bill. ...taking a ride north in early September. So we'll be here in three weeks. Thank you and praise Yahweh. For some reason, at the middle of this recording, the TalkShoe system just booted us. I have a recording here that I will post on the website shortly, and on TalkShoe probably a little later on today. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh.